In fact, I was hoping to come back to Israel as faculty. And in order to do that, I needed to go and do a postdoc for two years. And I went to MIT. When I want to go back to Israel, I will go back to Israel. This is how I live my life. I'm in the here and now on everything. Women's work is not considered to be as good as men's work, even if it's the same work. And I can tell you that many, many times I've heard, oh my God, she's not like our father. Undergrad, there were quite a few women. But what's interesting is my master's and PhD. We were a group of women together and we drew a lot of support from each other. I think we really helped each other through. Israelis are very involved in their political lives and also because it's just a fact of life, right? If, if something's heating up in the Gaza uh, border and you have friends who have sons who are there, it affects you. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is episode 28, an interview with Tal Rabin, Professor of Computer and Information Science at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also Head of Research at the Algorand Foundation that works on blockchain technology. You may also enjoy our lead episode of our segment on Israel, that's episode 27. That episode features three computer scientists, originally from Israel, and who have been in the U.S. since the 1980s and 1990s. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. I'm delighted to welcome Tal Rabin to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Tal Rabin is a professor of computer and information science at the University of Pennsylvania, where she has been since 2020. Since 2019, Tal has also been head of research at the Algorand Foundation, which works on aspects of blockchain technology. Tal's research interests include cryptography, network security, distributed algorithms, and blockchain technology, and many other topics. She's won many, many awards. Among them, the most uh, prominent ones include being Fellow of the ACM, Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, AAAS, and Fellow of the International Association for Cryptologic Research, IACR. She's also a member of the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences. In 2019, she won the RSA Award for Excellence in Mathematics, and in 2021, the ACM Stocks 
30-year test of time award. Stock STOC is one of the top theory conferences in computer science. In 2014, Business Insider ranked Tal Rabin number four on the list of 22 most powerful women engineers in the world. 2018, uh, Tal was listed by Forbes among the world's top 50 women in tech. Tal also spent several years at IBM, where she won many awards, including the IBM Eminence and Excellence Award, the IBM Outstanding Innovation Award, the IBM Pat Goldberg Best Paper Award, and many others. Tal has significant outreach and service efforts, including being a founder and organizer of the Women in Theory Workshop. We'll talk about that. She's won many awards for her outreach and service, including the United States President's Volunteer Service Award, Silver Level, and the Anita Borg Women of Vision Award for Innovation. Here is a timeline of uh, Tal Rabin before she became a professor at UPenn. She was born in the early 1960s in the U.S. Uh, when her parents were in the U.S. for a sabbatical from Israel. And then uh, she moved back with her parents to Israel when she was aged one. Then she stayed in Israel for the next around 30 years, 33 years, 32 years or so, until the mid-1990s when she moved back to the U.S. In Israel itself in 1986, when she was in her mid-20s, she received her bachelor's degree from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. Then she stayed on at the Hebrew University to get her master's in 1988 and PhD in 1994. And then in 1994, she immigrated to the U.S. to start her postdoctoral studies. She was an NSF postdoctoral fellow at MIT from 94 to 1996. Then in 1996, she joined the IBM TJ Watson Research Center, where she was for the next 23 years until 2019. At IBM Watson, Tal became the head of the cryptography group in 1997. And when she left in 2019, she was a distinguished research staff member at IBM. And then since 2020, uh, Tal has been a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and also since 2019, head of research at the Algorand Foundation. Welcome, Tal, to the Immigrant Computer Scientist Podcast, and thank you for being willing to share your journey and your experiences with us. We are delighted to have you join us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So you were born in the early 1960s in the U.S. when your parents were here on a sabbatical, and then you moved back at a very, very young age. You may not remember much uh, at that young age. What are your earliest childhood memories? My first memory is when I was three years old, I think, and I'm playing on a grass next to a marble frog with two friends of mine who were twins. Their names were R, Mommy and Titi. And in fact, we are friends to this day. So I've really known them from a long time, but it's like a, a, a split second memory. It's not anything more than that. But that's really my first memory. And did you, were you interested in puzzles and things about science and math from a very young age? Or was that more organic as you grew up? I don't think that it, I was sort of interested, but I was definitely quizzed by my father um, of all kinds of questions. But not really deep math, but fun uh, puzzles. Uh, in this country, some of the people are liars, some are truth tellers. What? How can you ask three questions and know who's right and who's telling the um, a lie and so on? Things like that. But those were the type of things that he asked uh, during as I was growing up. Mm. Your father was Michael O'Rabin, who was also an internationally prominent computer scientist, and he actually won the Turing Award, which is considered the Nobel Prize of Computer Science, in 1976. 
Um, what was your experience like growing up uh, with your father? Did you realize that he was uh, such an accomplished computer scientist? Did that drive you? How was it in your early years? Of course, as a child, I had no idea. But my father, at some point, and for him, uh, at a young age, he started getting awards. By the way, in 76, when he got the Turing Award, I didn't even know. It's not that this was something that was so big in the family and I was young and I didn't even know. But later on, he got some prizes when I was already aware of them. I think that really understanding the magnitude of my father's work and its impact on our society, on our digital society as we know it today, I think really came with understanding the technical material more. Mm. You can be told, oh my God, these results are amazing. Mm. And you can understand it on some level, but that it's amazing. But really, really the depth of it came with the learning and the education that I got, which of course started in the university. And I think it's something very special for a child to understand what their parent does on such a deep level. And in fact, my dad just celebrated his 90th birthday wow. and there was an academic um, uh, celebration in Jerusalem. And I spoke about that. And in preparation of this work, I again had this feeling that, you know, just comes into your heart in a deep, deep way. And uh, it's wonderful. In your school, as you were going in your early school and then middle school, would you say that uh, topics of math and science naturally attracted you? Or were you good in all the subjects and, you know, you just gravitated towards those as one of the choices? Only good in the maths and sciences. <laughs> I could not write an essay to save my life. So it, it, that was the natural choice and my natural um, uh, thing that I was good at. So I think that was clear. Though I have to tell you that when I applied in the university in Israel, you apply directly to a department. It's not a liberal arts uh -huh. education, but you apply to med school, to law school, to architecture, to computer and science and so on. I did apply to law school. My mother is a lawyer. I did apply to law school. But sort of at the last minute, I made the decision of going to computer science decision. Mm. Of course, I, I do not regret it all. Mm. Your mother was a lawyer. What effect did that have on you when you were growing up? I don't think it had the law itself had an effect. But you should think about my mother. My mother today is 92 years old. Oh. And she had a career for a woman her age. That was not the standard thing. So I think that my mother's impact on my life was really as a role model, as knowing that you can have both an impressive career and also take care of the kids. Of course, the taking of the kids was not shared equally then and maybe still is not shared equally today. So I did learn that you can do both things if you want. And I think of my mother as an amazing mother, and she was always there and available to me when I needed. So you could do it and do it well. And I think that this was important for me. When I was going through my career and had two girls, to know that even if I'm not there, 100% of the time, because I do work and I invest in that, that I can be 
maybe I'm not the perfect mother. Most likely I'm not the perfect mother, but I can be a good mother. What was a typical day like when you were growing up in like early school, middle school, a typical school day? What, what would that be like for you? So I didn't study much. So, oh, first of all, I'd be late to school because mm-hmm. I love to sleep. And I lived five minutes from school, but believe me, I never made it on time to school. So that would be the beginning. Then I'd be in school. The school day was short, definitely at the beginning. Maybe we finished school at one, two, and then later at three, that was probably the latest that school went on in Israel. And always friends, friends, scouts. uh, Those were the things that I loved to do. Uh, Studying, not so much. Not so much. And then when you came back home, uh, your, your mom was at work and your dad was at work. So my father, in fact, many times tried to come home during lunch to eat with me and my sister if we were there. But we had a babysitter who took care of us. And in fact, I saw her about three weeks ago when I was in Israel. And what was, she's still in touch with my mother Mm -hmm. because my mother had a profound impact on her life, Mm -hmm. on this babysitter's life. Um, She was the daughter of my parents' housekeeper. I see. And uh, my mother really changed her life. She ended up being in charge of English studies in Jerusalem and really... A lot of this came from uh, my mother's presence and involvement in her life. So she still keeps in touch with my mother and visits her. And so I saw her uh, three weeks ago when I was in Jerusalem. And what I didn't understand at the time was that she was 12 years old Mm. when she started taking care of us in the afternoons. But uh, she grew up with us. And on the next sabbatical, my parents took her with us to the U.S. So she was part of our lives in a meaningful way. Yeah, it sounds like your mother was a fantastic uh, mentor and sponsor in addition to, you know, doing her job. And uh, that's a great role model for you to have as well. Yes. Do you feel there were elements in your schooling system, especially science and math, that kind of prepared you for your career many decades later in computer science? Were there things or the way in which math was taught in school uh, or the way you learned it that uh, was markedly different and very unique? I don't think so. I think that math in Israel was at a high level, but definitely not at the high level that students now in uh, elite schools uh, can have. We learn basic algebra, calculus, nothing spectacular, but I loved it. And I think that that was the uh, differentiating factor for me. I found it exciting. Uh, I, uh, uh, geometry, of course, I thought was beautiful and things like that. It just attracted me and not because it, there was anything special in the way that it was taught. You were born in the U.S., so officially you were a U.S. citizen, and then you went back. Did you ever feel different from the other kids who were born and uh, born in Israel, or was it just like, oh, you know, I'm an Israeli? I'm completely an Israeli. Anybody <laughs> who knows me knows that I'm an Israeli through and through. <laughs> and even now that I've probably lived in the U.S. more than half my life, I'm still Israeli. Now, your your dad himself uh, immigrated. He was born in Germany and then moved to Mandate Palestine in the 1930s. Did you feel that? Did you feel some of those immigrant experiences come in when you were growing up? Or was that completely transparent from you? 
No, it was completely nothing. My mother immigrated from Austria. Same, same year, maybe both came, I think, in 35. They were Israelis to me. And in fact, uh, to some level, I always complained. They never spoke German between them. So I didn't learn German. And uh, that's a loss. But my parents were just Israelis to me. And I never thought of them as immigrants. I think they came very early and that was just eliminated. Speaking of German and speaking of language in general, what language was uh, your school education in, especially science and math? And then what language did you speak at home? What language did you speak on the street with your friends? All Hebrew. And I have to tell you that I also studied all my math in the university at Hebrew, in Hebrew. And sometimes now in class, suddenly I'm like, what's this word in English? I have no idea what to say. And then I have to ask the students and God knows what they think of me. But uh, Hebrew throughout, of course, I learned English while I was on sabbaticals here in the U.S., but it was never spoken at home. We only, only spoke Hebrew. So by the time you finish your bachelor's, master's, and PhD, essentially you had only spoken and done work in Hebrew, not in English? I only spoke in Hebrew all the time. I spoke in English only when I was here in third grade, in eighth grade, and I did one year of college when I was 18. So those were the only three years that I spoke English. Mm. But at the time, there was no, there wasn't a lot of TV and shows and there was no chat or anything. My life was in, it was in Hebrew. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Now, when you think of ideas, would you say you think in Hebrew still, or do you think sometimes in English? Or I always wonder, and I always try to test myself. So I sometimes realize that when I type a phone number in English, in on the phone, not in English, which I'm reading from the website, I say the numbers in English. But I think that my thinking is in Hebrew, still. that I still think in Hebrew. Yeah. Um, definitely. Definitely, definitely, when I'm thinking about my relationships, my conversations with people that I speak Hebrew to, but even if I speak to them in English, when I'm sort of analyzing them, that's in Hebrew. Mm. And I'm different in Hebrew. When I speak to a Hebrew speaker, I'm not the same. What do you mean? I don't know to explain it, but I know that I'm not the same. Something about it... um, I express myself definitely better in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. My vocabulary is richer. I have more um, phrases that I say, and I think they enrich the way that I can speak. But also, I think somehow my personality is more rooted in that Hebrew, and I come across slightly different. When was the first time you used a computer? So my dad worked for IBM on their advisory board. So they sent everybody in the advisory board a little IBM computer. You remember the ones with the little green screens? Oh, yeah. And that sat at home. And it was a very convenient um, clothes hanger. (laughs) Nobody used that machine, okay? It stood there for many, many years before I ever um, uh, went to, uh, to the university to start studying. So in fact, I really started using a computer only in 1983 when I started my studies. And 
that machine at home still was not put into use. I only worked on the computers in the university. And a little tidbit is that I have had email since 1983 because we realized that this email existed and my father was half a year away at Harvard teaching. So we thought that this would be a very convenient way for communicating. That we understood. And the phone calls were really expensive, like $2 per minute. So I got email. Sort of the university agreed to give me the email so that I could communicate with my father on matters of urgency. Mm -hmm. One day, I'm called by the head of the department, and he says to me, I've been monitoring your emails, and I see that you are also writing personal emails to your father. This should stop. Think about it now. If somebody would come and say this to you, I mean, you'd flip. And, and it seemed like a normal thing that he was looking at my email and the thought that you need to conserve on the emails because it's only for really important things. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I guess there's two aspects there. One is that someone is actually reading and monitoring your emails. And then the second is, well, you know, we need to save some bytes while you're, by not sending personal emails. Exactly. <laughs> Such it's a different, phenomenal. Nobody would think about it today. Such a different time in computing back then. Yes. Uh, what was the first programming language you ever programmed in? Oh, it must be Pascal. And that I was in college? Was, that was in university too? Yes, yes. In my introduction to computer science. This was my, as I said, first uh, encounter with things. And I think it was taught in Pascal. So moving forward in your timeline, as you're uh, nearing the end of your high school years and you're considering, you know, applying to university, was it um, was it obvious that, you know, you needed to apply to university? Was it just a given? Did you just assume that? Or were there other like career options that were also floating in your mind? There were no career options. That was it. You go to school. Though I have to say, going to the university, of course, was expected and there was no question about it. I don't know what my parents would have said and done had I not conformed to what was laid out, um, but this was definitely the case. However, grad school was not. Mm. So it's not that I was... I thought that I would necessarily go and get um, a master's even. I thought that I was at the end of the three years going to the job market. But the job market was not doing well in the year that I graduated. And so I thought, "Ah, I'll stay and do a master's. We'll see what goes. But still not a PhD, just a master's. But then I fell in love. The master's, the result that I achieved and so on, the feeling of doing research that was clear that this was the path for me. Right. And so when you're considering university, this is in the early 1980s as you're finishing high school and you're considering going for a bachelor's. Uh, You grew up in Jerusalem. Did you just apply to the university in Jerusalem or did you consider other places as well? I did not. not. Okay. I did not think of leaving Jerusalem. How did you apply? What did they consider for the application? Did you have to write an exam or was it just school grades? What was needed? 
we are talking a long time ago. There was um, something equivalent of the SAT, which was also fairly new in Israel at the time, and my grades, and that was it. Yeah, and that was a nationwide exam? Yes. And so you wrote this nationwide exam, and then you had to, if you wanted to apply to three different universities, you would apply with the same score and with your grades to these three different universities. Yes. Go from that. Yes. And to all the different departments. I told you I applied both to law and to computer science. So I submitted those two applications. Did you get into law school when you applied there? Yes. And so when you had to make this decision, what went through your mind? What made you choose computer science? It is so long ago that I do not know. Okay. My sister made the other decision. Uh My sister went to law school and she's a professor of law. But I think that at the end of the day, this was my natural path. This was sort of what matched who I was and what I am. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast interview with Tal Rabin, professor of computer science at University of Pennsylvania. When you were in college and uh, in those years, was uh, was military service required of women? Yes, but before that, after my ar- after my high school, of course, I went into the army. I was two years in the army. I'm uh, an officer. And uh, I uh, had uh, a lot of luck at the time. Uh, women's positions in the army were terrible. Most of them were secretarial jobs. Mm-hmm. This has changed a lot in the past 40 years. But there were a few jobs then that were better. Mm-hmm. And luckily for me, after being a secretary for a time, I managed to go to officer's course, and then I worked as a social worker, which was a much more fulfilling position. So you served two years in the army, and you did social work, uh, and you left as an officer. Did you ever have to go on the field? Uh, Because Israel had a lot of conflicts during that time. Part of the change is also that women were all in uh, non-combat positions, which was true for me as well. And of course, to this day, maybe women are not 50% in combat. We should not exaggerate that things have changed completely. But um, so I never went on the field, of course. There were were two things that I do want to say about it. Mm -hmm. One is that during my officer's course, the first Lebanon war happened. So they took us. There was a mess. It was a mess. They took us from the officer's course and put us on the border with Lebanon Mm -hmm. with lists of names of guys. And we had to mark going in, not going in, going in, which is insane to think that this is the records that they have of who was going into battle. And I don't know what happened with those lists and how effective they were, but this is what it was. And it was on these big um, computer sheets that was one line white, one line green, one line white. It was, and we, and we, all these women, we just stood there, girls, what women, girls, and marked these guys who were going in. 
So that is one thing, my close, closest as I got to, to something related to the war. And the second thing is that my base at the time was in what's in the occupied territories mm. beyond the um, 67 lines. Mm. And this meant that as soldiers serving in those areas, we had to uh, have a gun and walk around with a gun. And just to tell you how things changed over time during my military service. At the beginning, I lived in Jerusalem, so I could go in the occupied territories through Nablus and uh, so on. I could drive, and I would drive with this little rickety um, beaten bug that my parents had that could break at any moment. I would drive without any fear through these areas mm. to the base. But during my military service, the Intifada started. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I could not drive anymore through these zones, definitely not by myself without any protection. And then I would take the bus inside um, Israel territory, and then there would be a pickup place, and we would go in an armed bus to the base. So this is the deterioration of the relationships that happened. In fact, in a very, very, I, I served in that base for one year. So it tells you how in one year, it went from a situation that I felt 100% safe to a situation where I was just not allowed to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Which of course is a telling story about the situation yeah. in Israel. Yeah. So, so in the 1980s, as you mentioned, the Lebanon conflicts and then the first Intifada affected you certainly, did it affect your father and your mother and their jobs and careers? No. No. It, it, listen, it affected every Israeli, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. There were bombings uh, and, and of course, your political opinions. You, you might have not been happy with what was going on and what the government was doing. So in that sense, it's a small country. It's not like the U.S. that something happens one place and people don't know anything elsewhere. Yeah. You know about everything. Uh, Israelis are very involved in their political lives and mm. also because it's just a fact of life, right? If, if something's heating up in the Gaza uh, border and you have friends who have sons who are there, it affects you. Everything right. affects you. And right. of course, as I said, we are not the only side who's being affected by these right. things. People right. on the other side are being affected as well. Right. But my parents' jobs and so on. Oh, you know what? My mother. My mother, the office of the uh, attorney generals where she worked was in East Jerusalem on a street mm. called Salah Adin. And at the beginning also, she could go there really without any trouble and any worries. But later on, it sometimes, this was tense. Mm. Oh, and another thing also, we love to eat in uh, the old city, in the east city. We were really people who enjoyed this cultural mix that existed. And these things did decrease with time. Can you describe a little bit the, the ethos and the thinking among like your neighbors and your friends about just this instability that exists because of the conflicts? Uh, it, it's very hard to like draw parallels with, certainly in the US, we don't have that. I mean, we, we don't have these years and years upon 
uh, of conflicts and certainly in other parts of the world this doesn't exist but from what you're describing i'm understanding that it just became a part of uh, your thinking that yes there is a conflict in the background can you describe a little bit how you get used to that i'm not sure you do <laughs> it's not exactly in the background and as i said depending on your political views you might really also be very very unhappy mm-hmm. about what's going on and the fact that this is not being resolved in a proper way and so on mm-hmm. but i think that um for israelis really it's part of the life and not in a way that okay yes it's some process going in the background it is up there up front So returning to your education, uh, this is still 1980s and you're in bachelor's. Did you have a chance to do research in your bachelor's at all? I was not that ambitious. I was happy doing my schoolwork. I, I started doing schoolwork. I told you I didn't do much in uh, yeah. elementary school or high school. As my mother said, until my sister got to school, she didn't know that the teachers were giving homework. But in the university things changed a little and I and I did start doing my work and and getting more interested in it but not to the point that I thought yeah let's do some research now. Mm-hmm. And so your decision to go for the masters I think as you mentioned earlier was was based on just the job market not being that great. That, that yes, yes. Sometimes you need luck in life. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing how random events shape someone's life and career uh, this is a yeah. theme that occurs in in many many stories many many people's stories so then you you go to the masters and then how do you choose the topic that you're working on is it, do you take to your topic naturally or it's very interesting that you're asking about it because just recently oh you mentioned it that i got the stock test of time award the 30 year test of time award this is for my masters work mm-hmm. and Michael Benoit was my advisor just gave me that problem. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing and I had to read around and so on and I worked on it. And when we got the award, in fact, it's not that I didn't know it before, but I sent him an email and I said, "You'd really changed my life. I mean, you set the course of my life by just giving me that question because it made me want to do these things and the area everything about it and i'm grateful to him yes yet again chance but it was a moment in my life that really there was a split there was a fork in the road and it was just that giving me that question to work on And so you got that question from your advisor and you as you said you you don't have any background you're looking into it what were some of the feelings in your mind you know that i have to read a whole lot of stuff how do i even start this how did you navigate that you know what's lucky for me this was 1986 how much a lot of stuff were there was there there wasn't much okay in this thing there was one paper mm. i managed to read it 
And uh, and then really it was trying to think, but these were very new days of this area. And uh, these papers sort of launched this area, which now is sort of known as multi-party computations. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot to read. What was your creative process back then? And what is your creative process now if it has changed? You know, How do you think about a problem? Do you like to think about it in the back of your mind as you're doing other things? Some people do that. Others just sit down and, you know, just work on it for, for an hour or so. How is your creative process? So I don't know much about it, but I know that I need to be holding a pen and have a paper. Sometimes I never write anything. And sometimes I'll write like one word or two. But I do um, sit and focus. I sit and think about it or lie in bed and think about it. But it's concerted thinking. I'm, I'm focusing on the problem. But definitely sometimes I suddenly I'm walking on the street and suddenly I think, oh, here's a point. Mm. So it's it's really a combination of these things. Mm. And of course, I work with people. Not on my um, uh, on that first problem. Then I worked mostly alone, and I spoke to Michael from time to time. But today, of course, I collaborate more. Yeah. yeah. And almost exclusively most papers are with others and so we also work together and talk what excited you most about this life of research very early on in your masters as you started doing research what was it that made you think hmm, this could be a career for me something exciting about finding out something that wasn't known before that only you know that only you know for a moment the thrill of discovering new things yes. and the effort that is exerted to reach it that it's not a trivial thing, you know, that you had to invest a lot of time, a lot of thought in it. And suddenly it's there. I remember that moment when I solved this problem. I I know where I was sitting. And this is, I don't know how many years ago, I can't calculate. But I was sitting in the kitchen, in my parents' kitchen next to the radiator. I remember this because Mm -hmm. it was such a meaningful moment in my life. And how did you react at that moment when you discovered? I I was thinking, it looks like I solved it. And it's funny, I was uh, studying with a friend of mine and he was sitting across the table. And I turned to him and I said, you know, I think I solved my problem. Mm -hmm. I remember this whole thing. I want to ask a little bit about your friends and your classmates. Uh, when you were in university, very bachelor's, master's, were there a lot of women in computer science? Interestingly enough, the the year that I started computer science, I think that the percent of women at the Hebrew University in computer science was very high. It's not exaggerate 50%, but you know, it was relatively high. And over the years, it just went down and down and down and down. Mm-hmm. I think that when I started, it wasn't clear what these careers in computer science were going to be like. And when it was became obvious what they were, women's interest declined. Mm-hmm. And of course, now it's on the rise. So relatively, in my undergrad, there were quite a few women. But what's interesting is my master's and PhD. For some bizarre reason, because this was not the case in, in PhD, we were a group of women together, mm. and we drew a lot of support from each other. 
I think we really helped each other through. And I always say this to students now, you need to find your female peers because we're dealing, not that we should, but somehow we're dealing with different problems due to our personalities, due to the environment that we're in. Here, I'll tell you a story just now that happened this morning. My daughter works at Google mm-hmm. and her manager is leaving. So two guys from the, and there aren't many women in the group, two guys from the group write her an email and say, we were thinking it would be nice to have a farewell party for the manager. And we think you'd be perfect to organize it. It's so subtle, but it is so discriminatory. Yes. And, and we understand it as women. I mean, she texted me immediately. And of course I see it as well. But guys don't necessarily see it. And they do it because they don't see it. But we need to struggle with these things. And other women understand it. There are guys who understand it too. I'm not putting the guys out. There are many great guys out there. But as women, we understand it on a different level. We've all experienced it. And we've developed the mechanisms and tools to somehow get around it and we can help each other. And that's why I say to young students, female students now, you know, find your group of peers who are women who will walk the journey with you. So in these, in an event like this where um, as a woman you get, you know, stereotyped uh, and you're asked to do something which, you, you know, you clearly recognize that that's a stereotyping thing uh, how do you handle that situation some women might be very outspoken and say you know i'm not going to do this because of this and then there's the entire spectrum other women might say well, let me just do this it's a small thing it doesn't matter and then there are others what is your approach to it i think that it's more my gut reaction in each instance and i'm not sure that i always behave in the way that's best for me which is also part of the issue with these things, that sometimes sometimes there's no good way out. And sometimes it's just so aggravating that you respond in a way which is even more detrimental to the whole situation. But one thing that I always try to do is to take a breath because letting a few minutes pass and then thinking of how to react, you'll always reach a better conclusion. And also, despite the fact that I said that I have women who help me, always, I have a guy. And that guy, and some of the letters and emails that I write in response to these things when these things come up, I always ask him, because I think that the male perspective on what I'm saying and how it comes across is critical because it's going to men. And so I have sort of this mix of people that I rely on in these cases. Mm, That's a very interesting strategy. I'm just wishing some guys would actually ask a woman before they send some of these emails and requests, right? That would get the female perspective. But you know what the problem for these men is? That there aren't that many women around to ask. I could take my pick of 
of guys, right? But how many women? I mean, there are guys who literally do not interact with women hardly ever. How do you think we can go about educating men about these stereotypical assumptions that they're doing? Is it just uh, you know event by event, or is there um, something else we can do as a community? So first of all, I think that rising numbers of women, in their own, have this effect. Yeah. I think that the guys who work with me, who've been with me for twenty years, they're much more sensitive to these issues because. They've seen it through a, women, a woman's eyes. And there's no better education than that. So the numbers rising is good. Unfortunately, all these diversity issues are, women are tasked to take care of them. But I definitely try to do many things, as you said, that Women in Theory conference. But more than that, I'm now teaching a class about blockchains. This is a predominantly male area. I'm going to have a lot of external speakers. Most of them are going to be women. If you just look, it's so easy to find spectacular women to include in the class. And I had the first panel this past Tuesday. I, I just had a survey later for the class to see what they thought about the panel. Just It was really an, on a technical level. What did the female students write to me? All of them, without fail. It was fantastic that the panel was comprised of only women, three women. You need to pay attention to these things. And we all need, with a little bit of attention, I'm paying a lot of attention, okay? Mm -hmm. To me, it's really important. I think that as a woman in the field, I can bring on a little bit of change. But the men just have to think about it also and try to find cases where they can do something. Yeah, yeah, that's very beautifully put. Coming back a little bit to your experience, so in your bachelor's, uh, your classmates who were there in your bachelor's, I presume not all of them went on to do research. Do you have a general feel for what happened to them in terms of their next step careers? I'm not in touch with many of them, but Israel is a small place. So many of them, I do know what they are doing. And uh, some startups, some just went into tech. Another woman was at IBM Research with me. She was in Israel. I was in the U.S. She uh, rose um, very quickly as a star in the management uh path and so on. So I had some connections with her. But I know about a lot of people where they ended up with, but just because it's Israel. listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast interview with Tal Rabin, Professor of Computer Science at UPenn. Moving forward to the, you're nearing the end of your PhD. This is late 1980s, well, early 1990s, as you're finishing your PhD in 1994 from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, and you're considering next step career options. What were the options you were considering at that point? Oh, at this point, it was clear that I was going to do research. So, in fact, I was hoping to come back to Israel as faculty. And in order to do that, I needed to go and do a postdoc for two years. Mm. And I went to MIT. 
I did not fully understand that my then husband had no intention of coming back to Israel. Mm. And even when I finished my postdoc and he said that we were not going back, I didn't understand that this was permanent. And so I applied to IBM Research because I thought I will be going back in two, three, four years. Mm. And that's why I didn't apply to university position in the U.S. But my then husband, whose name is Boaz, he was very unhappy about the political situation in Israel and the occupation and so on and had no intention of going back. Not mm. when I finished my postdoc and not two, three, four years later. Mm. So that is uh, why I stayed in the U.S., and in fact, that choice, because I didn't go to university, I ended up at IBM, and that was an amazing place to be. We had a fantastic team, um, one of the best teams in the world in cryptography. And uh, we came there, we were all new. There was an original group who was more senior and it all left, and we were a new bunch of hires. I always said that I felt that we were like little ducklings that our mother duck had left us. And we started this group and uh, we became amazing, which was really nice. So when you came to the U.S. in 94 uh, for your postdoc, um, you came with your husband. So, yeah, and then... And a child. And a child as well. How easy or hard was it doing research while also raising a child? That is not easy. But if it's something that you want and you need for who you are, then you make it work. Many people have many challenges of different types. You need to somehow make your world move forward in a positive way. It's not difficult, but that child and the child that came afterwards, they are the light of my life. Even when things go bad and the work is hard and the result crashes and other things in life, personal things don't work and so on, that's the best thing. Nothing comes close to that. So for me, it is just so worth it, even if it was a challenge at times. The reward on both sides, by the way, nothing like the girls, but also the research is a reward. And so it, it came to form a life, which was amazing for me, that I have these great components. Apart from raising a couple of children while you're doing research. What were the hardest things after you moved to the U.S. in the first few years? Because you grew up in Israel and you lived there, as you said, for over 30 years. It's a very different style of life. And the U.S., again, is a very different style. So you're in Boston at MIT for your postdoc. Were there challenges you faced there? Growing up in Israel and living in Israel, the family, of course, is very important. And friends are very important. Mm. And as I told you at the beginning, from my first memory, those two twins that I met when I was two years old, I'm still in touch with. Mm. Friends are critical also. And coming to the U.S., I was fairly lucky. My parents were with me part of the time, but my sister was not. And all the friends. So it really is needing to build these relationships, new friends, and really a support system, because friends are not just so... You have somebody to go with to the movies. It's more than that. When friends are good, it's really, really worth a lot more than that. Yeah. And the, the family. The family you cannot substitute. You need to 
do something that would be close. Some of the friends really need to be stronger relationships. But to this day, and maybe now also because my parents are aging and, and my sister and I are very, very close, the distance is difficult. And that problem is never solved. Yeah. It's continuous, this issue, yeah. that the family is not there. My daughters don't have the grandparents, the aunts, the cousins, and so on. So these are things that when you're an immigrant, they are forever. But you you create a new life. You you try to build something around you, and that takes time and takes effort and a lot of luck. So, in your first few years here, as you when you were in MIT as a postdoc, were your friends the new friends? Were they formed because of your children and their friends, or did you have friends just for yourself? So somehow I know that many people manage to create friendships with the parents of the friends of their children. Never happened to me. I don't have a single friend that I can say that it's due to one of my daughters. Not one. <laughs> um, so it was mostly people that I met in wor- at work. And uh, I danced Israeli folk dancing. That was a source of some friends, but mostly work friends. People from work definitely are the, if I look at who my friends are, and my best, best friend, who's from my military service in Israel, Mm. when I was 19, we met, and she's in Berkeley, Mm. so she's also in the U.S., but somehow the distance has not weakened the relationship. Um, Before COVID, she would come here once a month due to work, which also helped, but we also speak two, three times a day. And that's not a work-based friendship and really is an extremely meaningful relationship in my life. Yeah. You mentioned Israeli folk dance. Uh, did you learn that when you were growing up at home or with your friends? Or did you learn it formally? Or I, I started going to a session when I was during my master's and uh, got the bug and did it all the way till COVID started. Mm-hmm. Usually when people think of computer scientists, we don't think computer scientists have hobbies, but a lot of us do, and you certainly do. Are, are there other hobbies that you have that you use to relax and just take your mind off of everything? Oh, so I have tons of stuff. I love to uh, do things that are not work. First of all, here in New York, I love theater, going to the theaters, dance, and so on. And uh, pre-COVID, I used to do it a lot. It really, this was... Uh, um, a major way that I would go out of the house uh, to do things. But it, at home, oh my God, I am so into junk TV. <laughs> I love The Voice, American Idol, The Masked Singer, all these things. And I also love to binge on TV shows. So I, uh, I do that. Turning to your timeline, so I want to take you back to when you're finishing your your postdoc at MIT and you're considering next steps. And you mentioned earlier that you wanted to go back to Israel, but that your then husband did not, and that's one of the reasons why you you started at IBM. And then you stayed at IBM for quite a while. You stayed there from uh, 1996 to 2019. Did did you ever 
go back to your thought of, well, you know, I, I want to go back to Israel still, or did that just like fade away after a while? I'm not a person like that. When I want to go back to Israel, I will go back to Israel. Mm-hmm. This is how I live my life. I'm in the here and now on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, I can tell it as a fact that I wanted to go back, but now I'm not thinking about it. It's not because it faded. It's just because I'm not thinking about it now. And when I'll think about it and I'll want to, I'll do it. And now I have two girls here, so everything is different. Uh, but it sounds like there is still a part of your mind that desires and wishes to go back. My heart, it will always be in Israel. And as I told you, I'm an Israeli through and through in my personality, in the way I form relationships, everything about me is Israeli. And whether I'll go back or not, I don't know. But maybe when I get older, I'll spend more time there. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out when we have this interview in 10 years, I'll tell you. <laughs> Um, so you spent uh, 23 years at IBM. Did those years just fly by as you were doing research? Or did you, like, at points, you, did you think, hmm, what should I do next with my career? I told you, when I think, I do. So until I applied for my university, at U, for my position at UPenn, I never thought about it before. Mm. I loved it. It it was just the best, amazing team. There was nothing that one could hope that would be better. Yeah. So research labs like IBM Research and also other labs that existed back in the 1990s and early 2000s, like HP Labs, Microsoft Research, some of them don't exist anymore. Like HP Labs doesn't really exist anymore the way it used to. And the, the ones that do exist have changed quite a bit how they do research, whether they do blue sky research or whether they're more product oriented. Did you see those changes happening in IBM as you were there in the 2000, 2010s? 100%. I got to IBM in 96, okay? In 96, the research division was sponsored by IBM from their money, 100%. By the time that I left IBM, we needed to bring in, in grants, whether from government agencies, from clients, or from the divisions, I think close to 62, 65% of our income. That's a major shift. And it's not a major shift just in the source of the money. It shifts the focus of the research. If you are able to get the money from the government grants and you can fix your research agenda to really respond to a call, then you'll be doing what you want to be doing as research. But if you're getting the money from clients or from the divisions, you need to be providing them with output. And that greatly impacts what you're doing as research. So, of course, a major, major shift. Do you feel that there are things we can do to bring back some of the blue sky style of research that used to happen in the labs? Or is it just a function of the economy and there's not much we can do about it? It's an excellent question to which I don't 100% know the answer. But I'm not also 100% sure that blue sky is really the right thing. Mm. I think that there should be some connection between the work done in a research lab at a company to the goals of the company. And it's not just because, yes, they're paying the money, but also because it enriches the research. 
People who sit in the university and don't have access to things that are happening in companies are losing out. The companies really do have extremely interesting questions that help the researchers and, and direct them in good ways. So I don't think that total blue skies is the way to go. Maybe the companies have gone a little bit too far and we need to find some better balance between things. But I don't think that the formula of the 70s, 80s is the right thing either. As you mentioned, you know, when you decide to do something, you do it. So what, what was it that made you think around 2019 or so, I need to change my career and move to a university, you know, try something new with Algorand? Was there an, an event or incident or was it just, you know, the years that had built up? So I think it was around, um, maybe I interviewed in 2018. The years are a little bit blurry for me. But I think that what happened was that we, so then I was 56. We had just gotten a huge grant. We had applied to a, for a grant and we got $15 million for five years, really to do very, very interesting uh, work. By the way, by chance, that grant was later canceled by the government. But at that point, we had the grant, and I was thinking, 56 plus 5, that's 61. When I'm going to be done with this, I'm never going to leave IBM. I'm going to be 61, and this will be the only job that I've ever had. And I thought I wanted to try something else. And also... I felt in relation to women that I was a little bit reaching them too late in the pipeline. And that if I go to a university, I would be able to talk to women. Women will see me who are still in their bachelors and that will make a difference. So I wanted that as well. So it was sort of a combination of things. And then when I was planning on, I already had the offer from uh, UPenn, uh, Silvio Micali came and suggested this Algorand Foundation thing and so on. And I thought, okay, let's try that as well. And uh, I took a year off from uh, Penn. I asked to defer and I did this as well. So it was sort of a chain of events, but really a feeling that I don't want IBM to be my only job in life. Can you say a little bit about what the Algorand Foundation does? The Algorand Foundation is associated with the cryptocurrency, which is called the Algo. There is the company which builds the technology and set up the blockchain uh, in place. But the foundation is supposed to be um, the organization that builds the community around the blockchain to, to have developers, to create apps that are working on it, um, to provide grants get the applications, examine them, and support them. And recently, we really also launched a very exciting initiative, which is a university program with many, many tokens, a lot of money, to really provide people in universities the place to apply for grants to do education related to blockchain, to create course materials, to get clubs going in universities, hackathons, and so on. So this is very exciting, and I'm involved in that project. It's being led by two people in the foundation, and it's sort of an ability to give back to the community, but it's not just for the community. It's also for Algorand. It's really nice when you can find something that both sides really benefit from. And uh, we just launched it. We got the applications and we're in the process of reviewing them now. 
such an exciting development for the cryptocurrency and blockchain area. I want to ask a little bit about your outreach efforts. Uh, as we talked about earlier, you're the founder and organizer of the Women in Theory Workshop. And beyond the workshop and efforts, the group is also amazing. Uh, the, I saw this song, I Will Survive, that was put out by the group in 2020. That was so wonderful and so uh, liked by the community. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the goals of the group and what made you form it? So... With this issue of women and the lack of women in our community, I don't know what the silver bullet is, what to do. What do we need to do to get our numbers up? But because I think I don't know and nobody knows, I think we need to try many things. And one of the things that I decided to try was to have this workshop that I do every two weeks. Now I organize it with two more um, colleagues, with uh, uh, Lisa Zang and Shubangi Sharaf. And it is just an effort to get women together for them to see amazing role models. The speakers are always um, accomplished women, really amazing. The other students are amazing. To start and create a network, as I told you, I think that a network is very important for women. So we do this every two years. And the first time that I, I did it, with the, I don't know, maybe we had 50 students. And now by word of mouth, these students go back to the universities and tell their fellow students, you have to go to this thing. Next time when it happens, you have to go. It's amazing. And the responses that we get are also so heartwarming. And it really gives you a feeling that you, you're, you're making, not a major, but you're moving the needle a little. Women who tell me that they continued on because of this um, workshop, that this changed their feeling about being in the community, and so on and so forth. And by the way, not only the students, sometimes some of the speakers as well. So this has been something that I've loved and enjoyed doing, and uh, it gives me a lot of pleasure, but I think it also gives people a lot of um, joy. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing resource and a great source of role models for women. I think it's also really important for the men in the community to see that such efforts can be done, that there are uh, several prominent women researchers. Uh, uh, I remember going to Grace Hopper conference a few years ago, and it was such a different experience being a minority in, in the entire, like I was in this room with 400 people in one session and I was one of two men. And that was so interesting. And I was, I couldn't help but think, oh, maybe this is how women feel, you know, typically in academic environments. Yes. So I think, I think that perspective is also really, really useful. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast interview with Tal Rabin, professor of computer science at University of Pennsylvania. So coming to our last segment, uh, Retrospective and Perspective, 
I want to ask about, you mentioned quite a few mentors and role models and sponsors. Are there others who really influenced your life that we haven't talked about? I think that the person that needs to be mentioned is Shafi Goldwasser, of course, because when I was a student, Shafi was already Shafi. Mm -hmm. And I think that the fact that there was such a prominent woman in the area was huge for me, that I can't even put my finger on how it contributed, but that this was very important. And throughout my life, I think that Shafi has been there and has been important for me. Uh, and I know that she cares about women's issues as well. She's had a lot of students, female students, and I think she's done the area a huge service with these things. So, of course, Shafi. Uh, my next question is about handling failures and rejections. This is something that we as academics uh have to handle a lot because a lot of things get rejected, whether it's papers, proposals, ideas, everything gets turned down at least once. What is your philosophy to handling failures and rejections? I somewhat genetically have a positive disposition. The The bad things, I think about them for a short while, but then they somehow just fade away. My divorce was something that I couldn't shake off that way, but most things... It's easy for me to, to handle. I don't think it's true for everyone, but I think it's part of my makeup. So I don't know. I just, I, I move on. You, you can't dwell on these things. You need papers rejected, work on it to get it resubmitted. Your ideas are rejected. Look at them again. Maybe they're not good. They're good. Speak up again. Yeah. I don't tend to get very depressed. So you're an optimist. That helps. I don't know an optimist, but <laughs> I just don't suffer too much. Yeah. Uh, sort of related to that, I want to ask about imposter syndrome, which is something that a lot of researchers face. Sometimes they face it acutely. Sometimes they face it chronically. Uh, what advice do you have for those suffering from imposter syndrome on how to approach it? I don't, I don't uh, approach it that well. I definitely suffer from that problem. On the one hand, of course, when I'm given something, I think, okay, I got it because I'm a woman, of course. And then I also think, on the other hand, when people don't invite me to, to give a talk, but they invite my colleagues, I also think they don't invite me because I'm a woman. I mean, I, I think that women were really screwed, right? <laughs> we, on both ends, we... But sometimes I just say, God deserve it and sometimes it's enough but sometimes it isn't did you feel that at any stage in your career you needed to overperform work harder than your peers just because you're you were a woman is this a feeling that ever pervaded your career i think that just statistically it's true right that women women's work is not considered to be as good as men's work even if it's the same work so I think that we do need to work harder, unfortunately. Did I work harder? I don't know. Um, but I do think that it's a problem that women face. I see it a lot. Uh, now I'm on a hiring committee. I mean, these are things that we need to pay attention to, the way that women are perceived, how their achievements are counted, as opposed to men's achievements. I personally 
always thought that my life was also important. I just didn't want to be completely consumed by work. And for me, for myself, I thought, okay, so I won't have as many results as the guys that I work with. And that's okay. And I live by that. And I can tell you that yeah. many, many times I've heard, oh my God, she's not like our father. Yeah. But then I would always think, and you, you're like my father? <laughs> I mean, really, how many people are like my father? So what are you comparing? And on some levels, it's also true in the comparisons between other researchers. Yeah. And, and, and the, these comparisons, people would say the worst things to me. Yeah. For example, my father became an IACR fellow. Mm-hmm. And he didn't come to the conference at that point. He was really, really senior. And, and he asked me to give, and I was there at, at Crypto. And he asked me to give this ICR acceptance on his behalf. And he always was a great speaker and he wrote a beautiful speech and I gave it. And afterwards, somebody came to me and said, and I was already an established researcher, much better than the guy who came up to me. And he says to me, you really need to get from underneath the wings of your father. (laughs) So... Not only am I a woman, I also have a very famous father. So, so did your approach to handling that question when it comes up, when the first few times that it came up in your life, were you just shocked by it when someone came up to you and asked you? I think I was very uh, aware from the beginning that this was a ridiculous comparison. But again, it's also part of my personality, I think, being able to take it this way. Do you say something aloud and explicitly to the person or do you just handle it mentally, internally when it comes up? Most times I don't say anything. That guy, by the way, came and apologized later. I see. I don't know if somebody in the circle had said something to him or he just realized what a complete idiot he was. But um, as I said, really, those people, they're better. So, you know. It's amazing that you're able to process it internally without actually saying anything aloud to the person. It's also for my love for my father. That's right, yeah. A couple of last questions. So uh, at, at what point of time in your life or career did you become aware of the gender disparities in computing? Was it when you were in college or was it after you came to the U.S.? Not even in grad school. I told you I had all these yeah. female peers And it was in retrospect that I understood how helpful we were to each other. But my understanding grew with time. It wasn't something that I realized, definitely not in my bachelor's, not in my PhD. This was something, a realization that came with experiencing many things. I always thought when I was young, I'll do it all on my talent. And if I'm good enough, that's going to be sufficient. But it isn't. My last question is a bit hypothetical, but I'm going to ask it. You were born in the U.S. Imagining that you had stayed in the U.S. and had grown up through the U.S. educational system, early school, middle school, high school, and university here, and everything else being equal, you know, your, your personality, your life, your family, your parents... Do you think your life and career may have evolved differently than what it did? I think that, as I said, there were lucky points, right? 
at the end of my bachelor's, the problem that Michael gave me. Yeah. So I don't know if those two determining facts would have happened in another path. I don't know if there could have been something like that. I don't know. But I think I would have been different. I would have not been me had I not grown in Israel. My life in Israel, the relationships, the country, the smells, the sun, everything, the food, it's me. That is so beautiful. Thank you, Tal. Thank you for coming on this podcast. Thank you for sharing your journey, your story, your experiences, and your thoughts with us. And probably the only phrase I know in Hebrew, Toda Raba Lach. Thank you very much. Toda Raba Lecha. I'm really grateful for you having me. I think that your questions are phenomenal because they really enabled me to sort of bring all kinds of things that I wouldn't have thought that I would have said before. So really thank you for that as well. Thanks, thanks. This was episode 28 of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. You have heard the immigration story of Tal Rabin, Professor of Computer and Information Science at the University of Pennsylvania and also Head of Research at the Algorand Foundation. If you liked this episode, you may also enjoy the lead episode of our ongoing segment on Israel. That's episode 27. That episode features three computer scientists originally from Israel and who have been in the U.S. since the 1980s and 1990s. Coming up next week in episode 29 is Moshe Vardi, a highly decorated computer scientist, winner of two of the most coveted Lifetime Achievement Awards in computer science research, the Godel Prize and the Noth Prize. You're going to hear Moshe's full interview in next week's episode. Moshe describes his story of growing up in a kibbutz in Israel, of nearly becoming a rabbi instead of a computer scientist, of serving on the front lines of multiple wars in Israel during the 1970s and 1980s, of cultural differences between Israelis and Americans, and his clarion call to rethink how we in the computing community, both industry and academia, view ourselves. Stay tuned. Coming up next week. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. <laughs>